right, so I am joined by Paul Jackman. This is going to be an interview uh, edition of the Modern Maker podcast. I'm in Washington, D.C. right now for a YouTube event, and Paul's in the area. And so he and one of his uh, giant nutcrackers, which happens to be in the driver's seat of his car, uh, made their way over here. So, Paul, welcome. Hey, thanks. Thanks for coming to D.C. No, uh, it was funny. I just saw you at like WorkbenchCon, and now it's like uh, re-colliding. Yeah, you came to me this time. So, so, so first things first, uh, why is the Nutcracker still in your car? <laughs> <laughs> to get me in the carpool lane, pretty much. Have you done that? Like, Because it doesn't really come apart, right? It's all one linear, six-foot-long piece. Yeah, yeah. like the arms come off, but the whole body is, is together. So yeah. it's laying down in my passenger seat right now in the back of my car. And that was the real reason I wanted to have you on. It's like, I want you to discuss what it's like to own and drive a Honda Element. Yep. I find that like an oddly practical maker car that like people don't, that people so associate people like us with like trucks. Yep. Uh, but you're like rocking the Honda Element, which I've always, when I've ever like looked at it, I'm like that kind of totally makes sense. It's the perfect vehicle for everything. Like it's not, it's not really good at any particular thing, but it's, average at like everything can you get a whole sheet of plywood in or you can like at an angle it doesn't fit flat like a truck it's wide it's wide and boxy it's boxy yeah so you put it in at like a 45 degree angle and you could fit a few sheets in there or I have a roof rack and I, if I get thicker sheets I'll just slap them on the top but like 8 foot material will fit in if you like the nutcracker yeah. <laughs> you put the fat passenger seat folds completely flat and the back seats fold completely flat so you can put 8 foot material from the front to back Yeah, that's basically at the glove compartment all the way to the, the back of the car it's like a compressed minivan or box truck right and then the other thing I, it first caught my eye when I was living in Southern California I think when it first came out because they were really marketing it as like kind of like a surf vehicle too because it's mm-hmm. like it's kind of a waterproof interior yeah yeah to a point it's yeah. like pretty rubberized the rubber floor yeah, the water seats or the, the, the seats are waterproof. Yeah, the the two use the two user cases that I've seen who just swear by them are makers, mm-hmm. uh, actually three makers, caterers, people that have small catering businesses because it's easy to get stuff in and out, and mm-hmm. they can also lock everything in there quickly. Yep, and then. Uh, <laughs> Pet groomers and dog walkers. Yeah. Dog walkers love them because it's like this big boxy thing where they can shove a whole bunch of animals in the back and they can kind of hose it out when they're done. Yeah, before they stopped making it, in, it was 2010 or 2011, um, they started to figure out what the market was. Because <laughs> from that point, they were like trying to sell it to like 20-something males who don't have money to buy a new car. Right. Like, no wonder people aren't buying it. And, and that's all they were marketing it towards. And eventually they made like a dog specific model. Like there was like dog print on the seats and everything. And there was like attachments for like a ramp for your dog. And they like started to market it towards that, that world. But like the contractor world, they never touched. I feel like it has a good application. Like you see the, the Ford, the vans, right. the little vans driving around everywhere now. And that's like the niche that it fits into, but it's even more useful than that because you have back seats and you can pop those out and in and it kind of fits like a, a Swiss army knife fits everything. Yeah, I always wonder with like trucks, like, like it's funny because like electricians and plumbers tend to go more the van route than the mm-hmm. truck route, and I feel like a lot of like the the carpenters and stuff that go with the trucks, it's not so much because of an actual assessment of utility. It's more because they feel like that's kind of what they're supposed to go with. Yep. Um, yeah, the number of messages that I get from people like that on on Instagram, whatever, when I post photos of the Element, they're like, "Oh, you gotta get a truck." And I'm like, well, why? Right. <laughs> and it's funny. They're not saying that. They're saying that as a reaction thing. They're saying that because of, like, iconography and imagery yeah. and, like, 
badassery, like all these sort of like associations mm -hmm. of like culture, not actual applications. Yeah, I, I assume they don't really think about what they're saying. It's just second nature. Like right. you, you work with wood, you buy a truck. That's right. just how it is. My equivalent for that is people always say, oh, you need a workbench or you need <laughs> you, know, you need yep. a table saw or these kind of things, which they're, it's funny. Those, these things are actually for, for reasons often. Like uh, for me, it's like the thing I dislike about trucks you know, especially doing construction for like a container house is that you can't just, if you go inside of the store and everything's in the back, it, people can just grab a circular saw out of it. Yep. Like I like <laughs> enclosure. I like this idea of a mobile lockbox for tools and materials and stuff like that. And the one exceptions are when I sort of pick up plywood and lumber. That's the only time I think we're in like an open bed, you know, it is actually desirable or advantageous, but 90% of the time, I want something with like high boxy ceilings where I can fit odd shaped things. Like yep. the element you could probably put like a, a washing machine or a dishwasher in like upright. Yeah. I've uh, seen people put motorcycles in the back <laughs> to haul them around. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> like, I feel like pickup trucks are inherently like very, they're, they're not very useful. Like right. For, for like a very specific use case, if you're like dumping mulch in the back or something, yeah, like it makes sense. But otherwise, like you can't haul long lumber, right? right? And if you have, have a ladder rack, and if you have a new truck, you don't want to dump anything in the back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. But that's yeah, the fifty, sixty thousand dollar pickup trucks that are yeah. on the market now. You're just driving them around like a luxury car. Although that being said, that Dodge Ram was pretty sweet. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny though. It was like the air suspension and stuff. I, know. Like I just kept hitting buttons and. Well, the, the air suspension was no joke because, I mean, I, I for the construction side, I'm going uh, across pretty rough dirt roads, mm -hmm. and I was going like 40 miles an hour just gliding. Yeah. But it was weird. It was like, this truck is like really diesel powerful, but it also was like almost too luxurious. Like, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. It was a little bit yeah. of a show pony kind of aspect to it. I felt bad putting pallets in the back of it. <laughs> like, it just felt wrong lifting the pallets and throwing them in the back. Yeah. I did like, did you have the one with the little toolboxes built no. on the side? That no, was pretty I didn't cool. get that one. And then, but yeah, it was, it was weird that they're combining luxury with utility. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it must be a really challenging thing for them to figure out where that kind of line is. Because obviously, I mean, at that price point, it's not like a tradesman buying a $60,000 truck. Right. Uh, it's like maybe a general contractor after a good year or something but mm -hmm. yeah the boss man right so it's yeah. more like a mobile office that has to have the iconography of construction <laughs> yeah it has to look like a work vehicle <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here saying a pickup truck is useless but like there's a market for them because they sell like crazy yeah, like really the F-150 is like the best selling pickup truck yeah like, or a car in, in general, the best-selling car in the, in oh, the United right. States. Oh, that's right, yeah. A lot of the American manufacturers are even thinking of, like, stopping producing cars and going all trucks. Yeah. Yeah, I think Ford has, has done that. Yeah. Like, they're doing away with, like, the, the small sedans and whatnot. Yeah. And it's the place like, of the trucks. Do you know uh, Chopped, Chopped with Chris? Yeah. He does, he's, like, always, he cracks me up. Because he, he's, I always see him, like, putting, like, a giant hardwood <laughs> log in like the back of like a Honda, like yeah. sedan or, or he's hatchback. Like a little Honda Civic or something yeah. like that. Yeah. He's like popping open the hatchback. Like you see the suspension just getting abused. <laughs> and he's like, also that guy has like a physicality to the way he makes things. Like it's just so kinetic and aggressive. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. He seems like a, it makes me exhausted sort of watching him, but it's funny. Like in, whenever I'm traveling in developing countries, I'm always impressed by like how they use like motorcycles 
for example, for like transporting like construction goods. Yeah. So I'm in like Africa or South America, you'll see them, some guy with a motorcycle carrying like, you know, 15 foot long steel sticks, right? Like on the side, like he's about to joust somebody. (laughs) Uh, But just like moving them through like crowded city traffic and, you know, splitting lanes between the other cars and and getting to the construction site. Yeah, just by necessity. Yeah. It's like, that's what you got to do. That's that's your equipment and you got to find a way to do it. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think this is actually like an appropriate segue into talking about your work because you do a lot of woodworking, you do a lot of pallet stuff, but I think you are free from like certain associations that'll let you not only drive a Honda Element, mm-hmm. but also let you take on a totally different kind of woodworking projects than I think what we typically associate with woodworkers and particularly people that do a lot of stuff with uh, pallet wood. The the sort of, and it's funny too, so I, I was talking to someone about you at, at WorkbenchCon and they're saying, oh, you know, he's just doing crazy stuff and that's why it works for him. I'm like, well, if you actually watch from his first videos to what he's doing now, it's escalated, but there's a through line. Like there's this consistency from where you started to what you're doing now. Like the material palette is largely the same. A lot of the sort of, uh, the ideas of sort of assembling blocks of materials and then manipulating those blocks of materials to make your finished projects. Mm-hmm. And then this exploration and power carving are just a few of the, the trends that I, at least from what I've seen, yeah. sort of uh, uh, emerging. But like, do you feel like what you do is like, crazy or do you feel like it's just like this is how it's naturally evolved yeah it's been it's been a very incremental change to get to where i am now um both the videos and the projects um i've had the the advantage of starting young like i was a a teenager when i started woodworking and went to a vocational high school and and learned a lot of the foundation there so like i'm I'm 28 now Mm -hmm. and you know my level of woodworking is is ahead of probably most people that are 28 and that's just kind of naturally as projects have, have progressed, I kind of add a new thing in with every project and uh, it's turned into what it is now. It's not like it's been a big leap. Like I started learning, you know, 10 years ago, a little bit more than that. And, and, you know, you learned how to make boxes, how to make stools. And it's like, once you, once you do that and you build a cabinet, it's like, well, everything's a box (laughs) just in a different form. And you kind of learn the joints and all that. It's like, well, what can we do with this? And it's been the same uh, evolution with the pallet stuff. Like I saw people building a pallet coffee table, a pallet wall, and I, you know, kind of started playing with the pallet stuff. And I was like, well, you know, this has a lot more potential. Like I want to see where this can go because people aren't pushing it far enough. You know, the, they're kind of taking the material as what it is and not thinking past right. kind of the rustic uh, charm of it, if you, if you could call it that. Right. They're, they're taking the pallet wood almost as a design cue rather than a source material. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so the end product looks like it's made from pallet wood. Right. You've already treated it more like a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I need this many. Uh, right. You're not letting the material dictate your creativity. You're saying like, oh, I'm going to make a nutcracker and I'm going to need this many uh, cubic inches of material. <laughs> right. And it's got to come from pallets because <laughs> this is what I have. And so how much of the... How much of the, the pallet wood thing was like intentional? Like, was that like a, an intention from the beginning or is it just something that was about availability or how'd you get started with that type of consistent through point? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Um, 
primarily just the free materials um, when you're starting off woodworking like you know I had no shop space really so you kind of spend money on your tools and, and uh, try to find free or cheap material and pallets are a very easy accessible uh, way to do that and it's it's um, it's kind of grown from there where I could buy fancy walnut material and and use that instead. I love, how, I love how fancy always has to come in front of walnut. <laughs> <laughs> I don't particularly like walnut anyway, but yeah. that's like for whatever fancy reason walnut. that's that's the top of the line right there. That's your escalate of, of wood, and uh, I don't know. I, I just at this point I, I could do that, but I feel like pallet wood is so approachable. Right. If people want to get into woodworking, like you find a pallet on the corner and tear it apart and turn it into something, and and the. Um, you know, cost of that is is basically zero. It's just your time that you're investing in in the material, and if you screw it up, go, you go find another pallet for free. Yeah. And um, like I said before, I'm trying to see what's what's the level, like how how far can we bring that? And um, also, it's it's all uh, kind of going back to the same um, the same thing of just using trash. You know, like a, a big time environmentalist, and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, just being kind to the to the planet of you know not throwing good materials away. Right. Um, pallets are kind of a a big focal point of that, like right. the number that you see in, in the trash is just crazy. And uh, it's something that the people can identify with, you know, in the videos and, and the projects. So you, you title a, a project, pallet wood, right. coaster, pallet wood, you know, whatever it is, like people know what that is. Right. And from like a channel and content standpoint, that creates a, a consistent thing that your channel is in part about this material source and things like that, which mm-hmm. I think uh, helps sort of congeal an, an audience around that that particular material source. But I think the, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I've always got the impression that, I think you're a great example of this, where so many people try to set, like it's, a, it's good to set rules and standardized practices because they help reduce the amount of decisions we need to make on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? So if you're starting a project, you have like certain assumptions like what materials you're going to use, it's already kind of baked in. So it's like one less thing to think about. But what I've always got the impression from you is that you're not like married to those things. Like you, I think a lot of people will, they'll set up, okay, here's the rules. I'm only going to do this kind of stuff. And I'm always going to publish on this day of the week. And it's going to be a video every week. And I'm only going to do this type of woodworking because this is what I think. And what they do is they just, they're when they're, I see when they're brainstorming, they're coming up with a lot of reasons why they can't do something. So it's, it's interesting that you have a lot of this consistency with like how you sort of work, but you seem at least, and we all never see how people sort of struggle in the creative process, mm-hmm. but it seems really just like fun. And even though there's a lot of tedious making parts to what you do, it seems to be like a pretty like comfortable like expression. So how do you sort of balance creating rules that help you be more efficient without boxing yourself to in? Yeah, I mean, there is... A familiarity with pallets at this point like I'm used to working with them so it is a familiar material um, I'm not afraid to venture outside of that like the nutcracker wasn't actually made from pallets it was made from reclaimed beams and studs and stuff the same idea it's a bunch of little pieces of wood glued together to make a bigger piece um, kind of stemming off the same thing as what I do with pallets gluing those together um, but that um, Dude, but there the consistency was also with the power carving and the, and the, yep, the yep. sort of ways of creating interesting geometries that are different out of pieces yeah like i'm not set set on on one thing in particular like i'm the, the reason i've embraced power carving is um it's very approachable same thing with pallets like they're very approachable anybody can get a pallet and power carving like all of my power carving tools fit in one little tool bag like right. you don't need a shop space for that even 
Angle Grinder's pretty amazing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number of things you can add onto that and, and do with it it's, and, and yeah. the shapes that you can create from it that are just unique. Cut, and, carve, sand. Yeah. Like, yeah. And a lot of times there's no other way to do it. Right. Just a simple tool is, is the way to go. Yeah. It, it's fine. So you work with Arbitech a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what sort of came first? Was it sort of the relationship with Arbitech or the interest in power carving? And now it seems like you're just... Now it just seems like every time I look at your Instagram... It seems like somebody's like, oh, can you make a Jackman-sized version of this? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Paul's been making a lot of just oversized objects kind of meticulously rendered in uh, in pallet wood. And then he'll often partner with people to make a specialty component. So he recently made a giant Craftsman screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Uh, although somebody pointed out that you did the Phillips head color on the flathead screwdriver. Yeah, because it's not done yet. Ah, I'm going to paint it red. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like to do that. They're like, actually. Well, actually. <laughs> yeah. We all know the well, actually, yeah. folks. I got quite um, a few of those. So are you getting hit up on a pretty regular basis? Can you make a big version of X? It's it's starting to turn into that. Like the whole the hashtag Jackman size thing kind of started as a joke because mm-hmm. I'm a large human. Yeah. And it just kind of naturally um, progressed from, I don't even know. I think the first project was a little Lego man, like the minifig. Right. And there was a two by four challenge. And right. I was like, well, let me make a big one out of a two by four. It was a single two by four. And I made one about a foot and a half tall or something. I think that was the first the first project. But it's always, it's just a fun, um, it's a fun exercise in in. Uh, creativity because like there's no established way to make a three and a half foot long block plane or uh, right. uh, number five uh, well, it was a jack plane right and uh, a jack and jack plane yeah <laughs> uh, but there's no established uh, route to get from the, the material to a finished uh, right a finished piece like that same thing with the screwdriver it's a four times scale screwdriver so you're testing yourself with like every every step of of that build it's like well how do i do this because you know, if, if you're building a cabinet, there's kind of established rules of how you do that and the techniques and kind of start to finish. There's a step-by-step thing. Um, whereas when you're, uh, especially like the screwdriver, I wanted to pour it out of epoxy resin, right. which isn't really meant to be poured that thick. No. But I was like, I think there's a way to do this. There's got to be a way to do this. And you did it on the light. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did is I made a wood mold and then I used a two-part silicone to make a negative of that. And then I made it so I could mount the, the box that's holding the, the silicone I, I could mount that on the lathe, poured in enough that would be a half inch layer around the outside, and then spun it up to like 600 RPM to get layers, half inch layers, but from the outside and, and work the way. It in. was pretty cool. It was like, yeah, it was. That's why science is important, kids. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that, that, that was the that was one of those projects where what you're making isn't important. It's that it's basically like a, it's almost like a, like a, the what a premise is for comedy mm-hmm. right like it's just a structure that allows you to improvise and develop humor around yeah the idea of like i'm gonna make a big screwdriver isn't funny or entertaining of itself but it's a structure that lets you then do interesting problem solving of how do i make a big uh, epoxy handle that is too thick to cast in a, in a monolithic pour and then how do i also also Epoxy is really expensive. How do I be material efficient? Mm-hmm. So how do I make a mold where it just sticks to the outside and then you use centrifugal force to, to spin it and cast it that way? So yeah, it's funny that I guess I always think of yourself uh, in association to comedy because you put a lot of like humorous uh, little 
portions in that and you know check out his uh his instagram handles this is paul jackman right jackman works jackman works yeah um into instagram and you'll see a lot of the little outtakes where he's very deadpan delivering absurdity uh uh yeah so it's yeah i've really embraced that too it's it's like i don't know you watch like norm Abram stuff and they have like a very you know the editing style of those videos is like very dry and it has a certain audience and i was like i appreciate that for what it is like i enjoyed that back when i was a kid i would watch those programs but i was like you want to we all talk about like getting outside of, of the maker community. You want more people to make stuff. Like how you do it is making it more approachable by making it out of palace, but also making it fun. Right. And adding in bits, bits of humor and stuff will bring people in from outside the space. Like there's people that watch my videos just to watch them. Right. Like they have no intention of building stuff. Maybe they'll get there eventually, um, but they just watch it just for the entertainment value. Do you consider yourself like a patient person? Because like your stuff is very, <laughs> like, I mean, the coasters, for example. Yeah. He made these incredible coasters, but it was like, I was watching this unfold on Instagram and I'm just seeing like step after step of like milling the, I mean, I don't even think you showed a lot of the, the sort of deassembling the pallets now. I think you just kind no, of start. I skipped like, that right. Yeah. <laughs> so one, disassembling, removing all the nails from pallets is work. And then you like, you know, mill it, glue it up into the one box or one kind of type of stock. Then you cut that stock and then glue those pieces up into another type of stock. Mm -hmm. And it's like probably like three or four steps of just reprocessing and recutting to get this really crazy interlock sort of diamond pattern. It involved cutting at angles, doing weird glue ups, and it just kept going and going. Like the, it's funny because the the result is spectacular. uh, And it's not that like people couldn't conceive of it, right? Like there's other people that could conceive of that. But it takes a certain kind of uh, intestinal fortitude to kind of just be like, no, this is going to suck. This is good. <laughs> There's no fast way to do that, right? Like, no, no, there really isn't. And like you were saying before about the comedy premise, like that whole project was basically a comedy premise. It's like, we're going to turn pallets into coasters. And it's like, what's the, the longest route that we can take to get to that finished product? Right. And like I was having so much fun in Instagram stories because I don't tell people what I'm building. I just kind of tease it little by little and see how long it takes people to figure out. And like I started with a bunch of pallets, I glued them together and, and there was the, the piece before I started slicing it up was like three feet by two feet, eight inches thick. It was a hundred and something pounds of pallet wood and, and glue. And then I sliced that up. I resawed that into a bunch of slices and then cut that into coasters. And it's like, I was talking through the whole process and then I get to this point and I was like, yeah, so I'm making coasters out of this. Right. <laughs> it's like all the work leading up to that point, people are like, what is this? This is going to be incredible. And I was like, it's coasters. Right. <laughs> yeah. and that, that was like the punchline right there was that Instagram story. I was like, yeah, it's coasters. Yeah. It's, uh, it's well, like in doing construction stuff, the, mo- the funniest moments on job sites are when everything's kind of slightly awful. Right, like something about like a little bit of suffering that makes everyone get a little bit giggly because mm-hmm. you're just like, this is so ridiculous. What else can go wrong? And then like, a f- you know, it starts raining, or, right? Yeah, and just the absurdity of like how difficult and stupid things can get is sometimes all you can do is sort of laugh. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this weird kind of like you sort of put yourself in like a somewhat torturous, arduous project that most people wouldn't have the fortitude to sort of work through. But then it's kind of like you're making it humorous along the way and kind of silly. Right. So you're sort of acknowledging like that the hassle, but it's all in this kind of like a uh, sort of woodworking jester kind of <laughs> fun spirit. 
Right, right. And, and uh, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I had a good point to make. Um, well, I, th- I think it's like, well, I think it also creates like a moment of celebration at the end where you get to crack a coconut. and Yeah, yeah. Like there, there is a certain level of patience there to get through. Uh, to get through the project but like that's that's the thing is like having that end goal in mind whether it's just the joke of making palwood coasters with all this this you know week two week long process to come up to this like final piece that people won't appreciate unless they see the process um or the nutcracker is like a really good example like the whole time i was building that i was like the end goal is to crush a coconut right i'm gonna pour it on myself (laughs) like that image in my head got me through that project like, I'm not the most patient person, but knowing that that was the end goal and that was going to happen, like, that drives you forward. Mm-hmm. But it's also just kind of, it's almost to spite people, too, at the same time. Like, the same thing with the pickup truck and the element. Like, I wanted, I don't want to buy a pickup truck now, specifically because people tell me I need one. Right. You have a little bit of contrarian in mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Like, you're also, like, vegetarian or vegan? Vegetarian. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like, you're not... I, it's funny. Like, I think... I mean, no one knows how all these, how creativity is connected in all aspects of life, but it seems like you kind of like defying certain expectations. Like you play in genres like woodworking and making and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but you just like to tweak it like just a little bit from what's sort of expected of the typical woodworking guy with a beard. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I look like a woodworker. Right. So I, <laughs> that's the thing is like, I want to, I want to play with that. Right. Like, like have some fun with, with everything and, and see where you can drive that. Because like that's the thing is when people wall themselves in and they follow like a formula to, to build something. Like this connects to my WorkmatchCon talk, right. which was titled F the Formula. Right. Uh, me and Zach Herberholz talked about just like if, if you're following a formula, like you're never going to develop your own thing. Right. Like you're, if you stay within the lines, like who knows what's outside that, that you're missing. Right. I think it's because people often connect their creative pursuits with identity. Mm-hmm. Right, they sort of like say, "Oh, I'm this kind of guy. Like, I'm not, I'm not artsy, or I'm not. Uh, I don't have like musical or like soft, soft talented skills or these sort of things. So it's like I ha- I'm a logical, rational, hardworking guy, and therefore I can't wear bright colors. <laughs> I need to, I need to do like wear like very sensible shoes right. um, and listen to this kind of music, and therefore my woodworking is an expression of this, and I'm re- I get." It's a challenge to my identity when I do something that isn't the right way or a practical way or to make a rational uh, product. Yeah, that's the thing. Like People like to pigeonhole themselves to say, I'm a woodworker, I'm right. a metalworker, whatever it is. Or like even politically, it's like, I'm on the left, I'm on the right. Like right. The reality is we're mostly in the middle somewhere. There's a range of, of things. And like that's the thing. I don't want to be called a woodworker. I don't want to be a videographer or a comedian. Like I want kind of a little bit of that play with those with those things and see see where that goes. Right. And just like I don't even know where the future of my business goes. Like right now I'm I'm a woodworker that makes videos, but originally it started as a woodworker that made stuff to sell. Right. And now it's kind of focusing on the videos with a, a hint of comedy. So maybe I take the comedy and, and run with that. Right. Like I think the the talks about the future of your business is so overstated. Mm-hmm. Because none of us know. Yeah. Like it doesn't mean we don't think about it. It's not it doesn't mean I don't care. I care a great deal. But I can't control all of it. It's but like that question, like, where do you see yourself in five years? Right. So it's like, I don't know what the future of your business will be, but I know what the future of your skill set is going to be because I know what it has been. You get, you're going to get better at woodworking. You're going to experiment with new techniques and you're going to get better at video uh, production. Mm-hmm. And you're going to keep mixing in more of your personality into it. Like, I'd say those are all like pretty safe trends to sort of predict. Yeah. 
and then whatever your business is, it'll be around those things. Yeah, that's the thing, and that'll incrementally change, just like my channel has and my videos right. have. Like if you look at my videos from three years ago, like they're they're not very good. <laughs> but it's like I didn't go to, to school to learn video production stuff. Like yeah. it was one step at a time. You you learn how to use a software, and it's like oh, I want to I want to do this. You know, how do I do that? And you you Google it and figure out how to do that trick, and you kind of file that in in your library of of knowledge. And it's the same thing with, with any genre of, of, of skill. Yeah, and it, there's been such an escalation in our community. Like, the level of content, I can't emphasize this enough, the level of stuff that people are producing, both in project types and content types, are, it's so much better than like three or four years ago. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's like night and day. Like, yeah. Um, and we've all kind of grown together. Right. Which is cool to watch. And people sort of establish benchmarks and then uh, people go past that in a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting to see like the trends that sort of diverge and then the ones that uh, converge again. Like, uh, you know, people are exploring with different materials. And then that like, there'll be like a moment in time, like river table apocalypse yep. <laughs> where there's like a convergence where everyone started doing similar things. And I'm not saying that in a critical way. It's actually interesting because you see when there's a project commonality, you see differences in approaches, both with video and with making. Um, and then I think like, it's safe to say that river tables are a little bit oversaturated now. I mm -hmm. don't feel like I'm hurting anyone's feelings. <laughs> but now people are taking the experimentation with epoxy and resins and then diverging again and exploring different ways to use them in different types of projects. So I think that's what's really awesome is that there'll be times where things are becoming more similar. There'll be like a knowledge-based or a sort of consensus on, you know, uh, a thorough introduction, how to use something effectively. I think it will happen in the future more with digital fabrication. Somebody will do something really cool with a CNC. A lot of other people will do similar things with a CNC and then everything will start to normalize and look like itself. But then people will take that CNC skill that they learn through that normalizing process and then do their own individual stuff again. Um, yeah, it's been very cyclical. It's fun, right. it's fun to watch that. Like if you back up and watch the whole space and see see that happen, like fidget spinners was another Fidget thing. spinners, like, early pallet furniture. Pallet, yep. Yeah, pallets almost been like a longer trend. Right. Which is which is fun fun to see. Yeah, the first wave of pallet stuff is everybody was building kind of like pallet wood boxes and there's everyone was showing their technique for how to disassemble things mm -hmm. and then that kind of saturated and people are like oh pallet stuff's dead and you're like hold my beer <laughs> <laughs> and that mentality is still there right like even mike said on the podcast once he's like oh pallet wood is like a dead search term right like he wouldn't make anything from pallet wood. and i was like well right there's, there's still something there yes and it's like he's right in terms of like the the, the common things. It's like people saying that like vegan mm -hmm. restaurants aren't as popular. Right. But but to the people that want that, they're exceptionally popular. Yep. And I get that when I work with, when I try to work with like a network, and they're like, oh, people don't want to see a home building show that's about information and instruction. And I'm like, I know that you're right, and that it's not as popular as just before and after reveals. But when you look at the supply of that kind of content versus the supply of this less popular type of content, this will perform better. Mm -hmm. And that's why when people ever ask me for, it's funny, that's why it's, it's like, I really liked your guys' talk, this sort of F the formula thing, because there are such things as best practices, but they're not always applicable because 
we don't all have common resources or common skill sets. Mm-hmm. So the five most efficient things to do, let's say three of them involve uh, search engine optimization and writing copy and things like that. But if you hate writing <laughs> or you're a terrible speller, or you're, just, you're slow at it, it's not going to be one of your five best things you can do. Yeah, yeah, you got to work to your strengths. Right. And that's different for everybody. Right. So it's like people don't take into account like personal capital. It's like we're mostly one person or a few person businesses. So it doesn't matter what theoretically the the best thing to do is. It matters like what's the best way to use what you currently have and extrapolate on that. So the pallet wood thing, oddly, like I, I love that. I love people that kind of defy that trend. Like, oh yeah, Mike says, pallet furniture is dead. Yep. <laughs> and you're just like chugging along, building this whole audience yeah. around this thing. I was like, wait wait a second. <laughs> I, I got more to say. And like all those videos perform really, really well. For right. But I think that's true not just in like uh, media. That's true with like craftsmen of all types, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's, there's people out there making violins the same way they've always been made. Uh, there's people out there cooking in a way that's like, people are like, oh no, no one cooks that way anymore. Uh, it's almost like as that trend, you don't want to be part of like a dying trend where there's a lot of people in the dying process. But once everyone died off, if you're the strongest person left and now you're the only person doing it that way because everyone else gave up, because they, they didn't, weren't able to stick it out or to sort of survive the downturn, that's actually a really competitive way to be. Yep. Um, yeah, if you can find like a very, very specific niche and be like the master of, of that. Yeah, like you're you're the biggest the biggest thing in that space. Yeah, the let's talk a little bit about your talk at WorkbenchCon because I thought it was so different than than it, than all the other talks, right? Like, so I went to like Brad's uh, Instagram one that mm-hmm. he did before and after it, and was like, it was so good because like Brad's amazing at breaking down not what he does and how it works, but why it works. Yep, uh, and using multiple examples. But Brad is also someone that loves numbers and like that's his joy, like that's his coconut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense for him. Uh, so yeah. it's like, you know, it's funny though. So your guys' message, I totally agree with, but the part I would push back a little bit, and I don't think it's like a pushback on the idea, sure. but I think, I think people have a resistance to it. Like mm-hmm. I was watching the audience react to you guys talk. And when you sort of say, I think when you guys sort of say, you just got to find what you love and then figure out a way to do that. I think a lot of people feel like, one, they don't know what they love. <laughs> um, and two, that they feel like that's a little bit of a platitude, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then they're like, but, but, because they they're worried about it being like the, like the way kids are treated now versus the, the, the participation trophy phenomena in like children, right? So yeah. it's like everyone gets a participation trophy now. And that's largely came from like a good motivation of like, hey, it's good. It's better to encourage people than to beat them down. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, work and reward, right? And but now people worry that oh, everyone gets rewarded for not doing that. So it's like they can agree that kids should be supported in doing that, but they might disagree with the sort of participation trophy aspect of it. I think I saw some people reacting to your talk where they were saying like, okay, no, I want to do that, but like if I just let myself do only what I like how will I get anything productive done? Yep. And that's clearly not what you're doing because you're doing a ton of things that you don't like. <laughs> right, yeah. And like, I, I tried to acknowledge that too because I felt the pushback, like you were saying. Right. Like, I kind of anticipated that. And like, 
I, I, I acknowledge that. I was like, I, I understand the irony of us of us standing up here, like basically on a pedestal, and we have like established YouTube channels, and like we have businesses that, that pay us money, and, and you know we're paying the bills, and we're fine, and we're saying just do what you love. It's like, well, yeah, we're <laughs> that's we had a, a, a meme in there of, of Bo Burnham, and he's he's basically you know he's a, a comedian that, that came up in like the the infant stages of YouTube. Right. He kind of got lucky with being at the right place at the right time, right. and he was talking. I think it was on Conan, and and basically said like, don't listen to me and and like Katy Perry tell you to like follow your dreams, right? Because like we're <laughs> we're not the right people to listen to. Like that's like a, a lottery winner saying like liquidize your assets and buy and buy uh, Powerball tickets because right. that's how you make money. Right. Yeah, I think it's like almost like finding the struggle that you that you like the most. Yeah. <laughs> right. More than like right because it's like I love my work, but there's so many days where I hate my job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found like this type of struggle that suits me the best, or for now at least. Um, so I found like a, a pain in the ass that's like awesome for me, (laughs) um, but that doesn't mean it's not, it's like all joy and comfort and, Mm -hmm. and and fun. It's a lot of like, yeah. And that was kind of the point of the talk is like, we started like over on, on this far left side and we're just saying like the, the made for profit podcast is like total BS. Like don't listen to anything that (laughs) that Malecki and Brad say. And, and, uh, we're, we're on the complete opposite side. And like, by the end of the presentation, we're like, you know, the real answer is somewhere in the middle for most people. Right. Like you, you could be a complete artist. You could be like a complete data nerd like Brad. Right. You know, or you could be such a data nerd. (laughs) The worst, the worst. It's funny. Yeah. I think that's the other thing is that you don't owe it to yourself or there's no obligation to optimize everything, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't have to do every platform or all those things. Right. Right. And you don't have to start out with that mindset to, to, to begin with. Like right. you, you don't have to say, I'm going to make a YouTube channel. I'm going to make this. You don't like need I to be on Twitter. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I think, I think because people see it, people, a lot of people are interested in taking, going from sort of a hobby to a profession mm-hmm. and they rightly describe that as a leap and anytime you take yeah. something as much of a leap your means you're even the choice of that word means you're thinking about it as risk yep. and I think people they look at doing a lot of different things as a way of like protecting that which I actually think the opposite is true where it's really just doing that inventory and being like oh here's what I'm going to do be really good at and like that doesn't mean I have to do everything that means I probably only really need to double down on this thing. Um, so, I mean, I, I, you know, I would watch, you know, early on, I'd watch like Jimmy's and Bob's videos. I'd be like, okay, so Bob's really good on camera and he talks to that and he's just got this like really kind of just like every man, but smarter kind of communication ability. I'm like, okay, I got to figure out how to do that. And I like, I would try to do some things like that. I'm like, this just isn't me. I'm like, well, I don't know. That's good. I'm, I'll design differently. Um, and, yeah, I think that's what's so what's so fun, especially at this last workbench con, is that there's so many people that have like, I guess for lack of a better term, I don't want to be like jinx it, but if I like kind of made it, mm-hmm. um, that have figured out a way to make a good living doing cool stuff that's representative of them, and the channels are different. There isn't a formula, 
right? Like, right. And if you look at those channels too, most people have gotten there by accident. Yeah. Like my intention wasn't to start a YouTube channel to, to be my full-time job. Yeah. Like I did not envision what it is today, you know, three years ago, basically when I, when I took it full-time and, and most of the people that you see that are like the bigger channels, it's the same case. Mm -hmm. Like that wasn't the plan. It wasn't to make it a business. And there's a lot of people that ask me, I'm sure the same with you. Yeah. You know, when did I was talking with somebody on Instagram this week and they're like, I don't know when to take the jump. And it's like, well, <laughs> you got to work up to that. Right. Like it's, it's not one, one big jump. Like I, when I took my business full time, like I had no business doing it with the, my channel was like 20,000 subscribers or something, but my wife had joined the Coast Guard at that point. So I had to quit my full time job. So it's like, well, it just made sense. Like I had some savings from my job that I was working in Boston and I had basically, I said my, uh, myself a year, I said, give myself a year, see if I can get it to grow to a point where it's actually making money. And if not, I can go and get another job. No problem. And if it works, I'll keep doing it. Right. And, and I kept doing it. So that was just, that was my jumping off point, but it wasn't by choice. Right. Really. And this is all experimentation. Like you don't know, people want certainty before they try and it just doesn't exist. Like mm -hmm. you have to experiment. What I think what's great about your portfolio of work is that you're throwing darts at a board and seeing what happens, but you're throwing them in a cluster, right? Right. And that's why I think it is going back to like some consistency throughout your processes. You've, a lot of people think like experimentation is just trying random stuff and then hopefully one thing hits big. When I think that like effective uh, experimentation is when you're only changing a few, one or two variables at a time. Mm -hmm. So you can actually uh, see some comparison that's about the variables, not about just like a random set of choices. Um, and again, that's why I like looking at your, your whole portfolio because there's so many through lines, but where you're at right now is so different than where you started, but it's totally, you can see the DNA going all the way back through. Right. Yeah, there's a very natural progression in the projects themselves. Like from... I think it might have been the pallet wood workbench was kind of the first pallet project and it just kind of stemmed from there. Right. And the most recent one I think was the coasters mm -hmm. and it was, you know, progression from that point, like with every project, like, um, from the workbench, I think the next one was like the bench that I made with the, the contoured seat on it. And that had like finger joints, like faux finger joints on the corners. And that was kind of the next level from that and, and carving the seat mm -hmm. in that. I don't remember what the, the next one was past that, but I'm sure it played on that idea. Right. from that project and, and put a different spin on it. So they're all their own unique projects on their own, but they're also kind of a series of, of progression uh, from the workbench to, to coasters and the videos themselves. Too. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the editing style of the videos has, has progressed. You started doing a lot of your like kind of Zach King, like magic tricks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of editing tricks and stuff. And I would try to think of something new for every project. It's like, Oh, I want to, I want to hit myself with my car. And, right and and try to you know blow pallets up that way and, and I was like well how do I do that <laughs> I, Pat Lapp is a good friend of mine a, a French Canadian another YouTuber Olympic mm -hmm. Bois and uh, I'll throw ideas at him it's like I want to do this how do I do it right <laughs> and he's really good at, at solving those problems for me so what's what's next for you like what are the the areas you, you're like investigating now and what are the type of projects you're you're currently intrigued by. Yeah, I mean, keeping playing with the pallet wood, um, more reclaimed stuff. Um, the most recent project I've been working on is a kitchen island, and I'm, I'm making some barn doors to go on it. And uh, welded up some uh, rebar, or not rebar, uh, angle iron mm -hmm. uh, that I got from the salvage store. And it's, you know, reusing metal is not something you see a ton, because yeah. it's kind of hard to find. But um, if you can find those architectural salvage places. Right. Those are, those are pretty cool. They, sometimes they're, like, a little pricey relative yeah. to what you get. Like, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's like... 
it's like vintage store versus thrift store. Right. Like same job, <laughs> totally different price point. Yeah, it's the same materials. Yeah, you got to be there at like the right place at the right time yeah. to find the material too, which is tricky. It's yeah. not like Home Depot. You walk in there, no. you know there's a two by four. So is, are you going to go with like a, a paint and finish or go with like a clean sort of just take the metal all the way down to bare and wax it? or what Yeah, you I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure. I was thinking maybe painting it. Um, but I'm not sure. I want to keep the metal look too. Right. Like the pallet wood. Like I like to keep the look of the pallets, but unless I tell you that it's pallet wood, you don't know what right. it is. Um, so maybe play off of that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. The future is just kind of developing that further, um, seeing what the next step is. Um, in both, both the video making aspects and, and the reclaimed aspects and kind of trying to play with more materials and um, kind of chan- tangentially connect them to, to what I've been doing. Right. Um, yeah, I think like when, when you introduced, it's funny, people think that they need to have all these random elements to create something unique, right? And you, I see this in cooking all the time mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, we can't just have good french fries. We have to have like truffle oil french fries and they can't just be truffle oil french fries they also have to be truffle oil parmesan french Mm -hmm. fries and then someone else did that so we have to add so it becomes very additive right when whereas i think what you're really good at is taking the basic thing the palette stuff and then saying okay now i'm going to get into power carving and that just just open up one type of project for you that opens up like a whole bunch of types of projects for you and it seems like because then you start thinking of more organic or curvilinear shapes mm-hmm. out of out of solids, then you're like, oh, maybe I'll do some on the lathe and some on this, and then it's opening up a shape vocabulary. Right, and you get your brain thinking differently too. Right, because like naturally or, or historically, I guess woodworking is very linear, boxy, and, and you know that kind of shape versus a, a organic shape that, which is kind of ironic, because like that's trees are organic yes. and you turn them into like these rectilinear shapes um, and I'm kind of like turning it back into an organic shape um, but it does make you think differently which then kind of uh, primes your brain to, to think of different ideas right. that are outside of the box yeah I, Literally. Think, I think from like a few years from now we'll look back and be like okay if you have the question what are all the different types of things I can make out of pallet woods like if they look at your channel, they'll see like 40% of the answers. Yep. <laughs> like it's a, I've done all the work for you. <laughs> here's a body of research, right? Like, and, and, and also how it will develop with like, as, as, as skill sets develop too. I think that'll be pretty, pretty cool to see. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I experienced similar things, not to the same uh, degree when I was doing concrete stuff for a while is that like, okay. So the first step was, how do I take cheap disposable things on hand and pour concrete into them? And what could those shapes be used for? Yeah. Then it was, how do I manipulate those things that I found? And then it was like, how do I introduce a, a material? Then, it, then with that, I sort of acknowledge, here's the limitations of the found objects as they relate to mold making. Then I introduce like a specialty material like silicone for that. And then it's about form finding to, to, to drive that sort of silicone mold making process. Um, but it's so much it's so much less stressful to just take one step with one experiment rather than saying i got to come up with a video that goes viral that has 800 things that nobody's ever seen before right and i got to put led lights in it it's got to have a resin thing it's got to have some glitter it's got to have a montage of power carving it's got to have re- reclaim it's got to hit these things so 
it's much easier to just escalate uh, uh, incrementally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's funny how, how similar the concrete thing is to, to the pallet wood. Right. Like, we've both kind of gone along those routes kind of at the same time unintentionally. Right. Like, you search for concrete on YouTube, and you're going to find a handful of your videos. And the same thing with pallet wood for right. me. And just creating a library of content to see, like, you know, concrete is, is like the thing that's holding up every building that everybody's sitting right. in right now. And pallets are like, that's how everything oh. gets to you. <laughs> everything that we have came on a pallet. Right. Yeah. So they come from like the same, the same, like just low level of, of like, you don't even think about that as a material. And have you done like much like research or read like about pallets and like just in general, like the, like, do you have like weird pallet knowledge? I don't know. A little bit. I mean, the blue pallets, the chip pallets, mm. there's a, there's a story behind that. Um, basically, if you see any of the blue painted pallets, they're owned by Chep, which is like a, a national uh, pallet ownership mm. company. Um, so like if you take one of those and, and disassemble it, like you're technically stealing from yeah. Chep. So like they can, they can take legal action from oh, you wow. for, for taking one of those apart. I think it was a Canadian company at one point. I can't remember or Australian. It was some other country, and somehow they're they're all. So it was Australian. That's what it was. Uh-huh. It was during the World War II. There was like a bunch of pallets that the U.S. was was um, setting up in in Australia, so they were near Japan. And there's like some connection be- between that and what Chep is now. Like I think they had a bunch of pallets there, and they left them behind. And then Chep took ownership of the pallets that the U.S. just like left there, and that kind of somehow developed into what it is today. I don't know, like from from A to B, how that got there, but that's like the the, the birth of, of, of that uh, that company. So, can you like identify the difference between like a pallet that originated from China versus Russia? Actually, they're probably too close together, but like <laughs> South America versus China versus Russia versus you know the U.S. Yeah. and stuff like that or a lot of them are stamped so hmm. if you see the stamps that they say heat HT which is heat treated and then there's usually a, a country code on there so you can tell what country originated from um, and there's there's HT and MB which is how they treat it to eradicate the bugs in the wood uh, hmm. MB is methyl bromide it's a chemical right. they used to fumigate it with which is now illegal awesome for cutting basically boards basically everywhere yeah <laughs> 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 not, not cutting boards and shot glasses you yeah. know something stupid like that and, uh, yeah, I get a lot of crap for that, but the, that was like illegal, I don't know, 15, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it was interesting. In, in doing the shipping container house, I was researching just kind of like the flow of containers. Like, where do they come from? Like, right. how many trips do the, does an average one take before it gets decommissioned? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what happens to them? Because there are these things that just travel all over the world. Like, yeah. they did like, you know, bacterial or, or like organic scans of a pallet or a shipping container. It's going to have soil samples from every continent mm-hmm. on it. By the time it's ten years old, yeah, yeah. Uh, the shipping containers—it's funny. That's like the same thing, but they're more uniform. Right. Whereas the pallets are whatever material is in that local area where they right, they, and then they just use like for harder or like stronger woods for it. There's more compression weight on them mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, like I got a pallet. It was one of the Coca-Cola pallets, um, which technically is property of Coca-Cola, but it was in the trash. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I took that. I dis- disassembled it because it looked like some real nice material, and it was uh, Kamaru. Which is like oh, a yeah, South American yeah, yeah. hardwood. Yeah. I've, I've done some. Yeah, it's it's like almost. Got, it's a little bit lighter than than Ipe. It's like a little mm-hmm. more orangish, yellowish. Yeah, right. But still, like really dense. And just got the dark color to it. <clears throat> yeah, it's funny. Like, uh, well, it's. I mean, South America. It's like they have like 
a lot of the palettes that I've seen down there are like eucalyptus or tropical hardwoods. Yep. And a lot of them will have like live edge pieces of tropical hardwoods because <laughs> those are the plentiful trees. They that's just what they have. They yeah. don't have that softwood kind of, uh, uh, you know, pine and mm-hmm. fast growing stuff. It's just they have a lot of like moisture and humidity and there's a lot of rainforest. So it's these like harder, oily woods and stuff. Yeah, like it's that. like luxury material to us. Yeah. Like we'll pay. 10, 15 bucks a board foot or something yeah. for this crazy exotic stuff. And the other time I've seen it, I've seen a lot of like timber strand ones recently yeah. where it's like, especially for like heavy machinery where mm-hmm. like the, the, the flats will be hardwood, like the, the half inch or three quarter inch like slats, but like the structural members uh, across them are like timber strand. It's not, it's like, have you ever seen that, those type of beams? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, in, it's like a three dimensional elongated, OSB, but mm-hmm. in volume. <laughs> yeah. And they can actually look pretty cool sometimes, too. Yeah, I've turned some of that before, just because yeah. of the, the shape of it's really cool. Cool. So, uh, what have you been uh, watching and consuming from a content standpoint? Um, I don't know. Probably, I watch a lot of Rhett and Link, you know, the Good Mythical Morning guys. And uh, particularly, if, if you've seen my earlier content, you saw the cutting board that I made for yeah. them. And that they've been doing more like cooking content, so that's been posted. Uh, popping up more in, in their videos and uh, recently on, on Twitter there was a clip that a lot of people sent to me and uh, the cook myth- mythical chef Josh they call him had a, a cleaver and he was like chopping a chicken's head off or something and <laughs> it was an end grade cutting board with feet on it so it's like that's not a good idea and he just chopped the board right in half <laughs> so um, in, in case anybody's worried about that I've been talking with, with Josh I connected with him on Twitter gotcha. and I'm going to rectify that, that situation yeah, end grain cutting board is not good for cleaver. No. <laughs> Are you going to make a new one or just repair that one? Or Yeah, I'm going to make a new one. They said they got rid of the... They, the wording was they recycled the old one. So yeah, I was like, gotta, I don't know what that means. you got to bring that palette diamond pattern. I know. Into, uh, <laughs> for a cutting board. Yeah. That'd be a lot. And obviously no palette wood for cutting boards, right? No. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's like where I draw the line. Like, I made the shot glasses out of palette wood, but it's like they're for looks. Right. right? And also it's them. like the alcohol's... Probably worse. <laughs> More than likely, yeah. yeah. It'll kill whatever whatever's in the palette. Yeah, I haven't been watching too much YouTube lately. Um, I've been... Uh, oh, I've been listening to, to podcasts, though. In particular, uh, I've been listening to a comedian named Andrew Schultz. Uh, and if you have children or are offended by bad language, don't listen to him. It's, it's pretty filthy. But he's really smart. And in particular... Uh, I heard him on the Fighter and the Kid podcast, and he was talking a lot about platforms, and that was the part I was really interested in, is that all these comedians, so comedians, they all like like us, they're a community, they talk to each other, they produce content, a lot of it independently produced, they use podcasts and YouTube in combination to, to get their word out, and they make their money by selling tickets and stuff like that to, to live shows, which is a little bit different than you know, branded integrations, which is what we kind of do more. But what was interesting is that they all kind of try to get these, these special de- deals. So if you're a comedian and you get a Netflix deal or an HBO deal for a stand-up special, mm-hmm. that's considered like uh, a legitimizer or like a big step. Well, here's a guy that was doing really well online, but he could never quite get that deal. But instead, he's arguing that it's actually, he's releasing his own special just on YouTube. But instead of releasing as an hour-long thing, he's releasing it as like a sort of weekly series of like 10 to 15-minute chunks of it Hmm. around a particular topic. 
And I'm really interested to sort of watch how I do it. He's sort of suggesting that he thinks he actually might be able to make more revenue off of this because it'll get seen by more people. There's more people have YouTube than Netflix and right. uh, certainly more than HBO or Showtime or any of those. So Andrew Schultz, um, pretty funny guy, definitely profane, but uh, I always get good ideas on the business side, listening to people from other genres talk about it. Because again, it's, it's <laughs> I think you're absolutely right in your talk saying that there's becomes this over obsession with formula. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good way to challenge whatever formulaic things that we're doing is by to look at other things that work in a completely different way whether that's pulling from an outside uh, a medium. So that would be my pick. Well, anyways, uh, Paul, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And uh, for the rest of people, well, I'm actually just going to kick it to Mike to do the outro. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Awesome. Uh, actually, my name is Chris, guys, but thank you anyways. All right. Well, we are at Benjamin Ueda, at Four Eyes Furniture, at Modern Builds, and at Jackman underscore Works. Thanks, Paul, for joining us on this one, and I'll keep it shorter than what Mike likes to do, and it's late at night, so I'll just say good night. See you next week. <laughs>